This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join in on the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode or any other, please join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hi, this is Tucker Smallwood from Star Trek Enterprise. You're listening to Trek FM. Welcome, boomers, to another episode of Warp 5, Trek FM's dedicated podcast to Star Trek Enterprise. I am your host, Patrick Devlin, and as always, I am joined by the lovely Brandon Shamatala. Brandon, how are you? To call me lovely is illogical. <laughs> it is not. I, I, I am a human. It, we have emotions. I do not understand your Earth emotions. I understand this. I get it. Ah, oh, Vulcans. But you are not the only person on this podcast. We also have a, a special guest today, our special guest is Karen. Karen, how are you? Good. How are you guys? I'm doing great. I actually do have emotions, believe it or not. I'm an emotional (laughs) being. Uh, So, Karen, this is your first time on Warp 5. And uh, I guess I should probably say Karen Chuplis. I should give you your full name, not just your first name. But uh, uh, So usually when we bring someone on for the first time, we like to ask them, how did you first get into Star Trek? How did you get into Enterprise? You know, what, what's your history with the franchise itself? Well, I've just been involved, you know, been aware of it my whole life. I grew up, I was, um, I probably even saw the first run, even though I was like three, four, five, because I had an older brother. And uh, then for sure, when they came back on syndication, I was glued to it. So mm-hmm. I just grew up loving Star Trek. I had the James Blish because you know you didn't weren't weren't able to watch them again, so I had the James Blish, not or you know short story forms of the series to read in between showings, and I played Star Trek in the backyard, and I mean I just grew up loving it, and I've just always it's just always been there. Mm-hmm. Which is your favorite series? Probably the original series. I, I don't consider it favorite. It's kind of got a special spot. Um, and I tend to I have a hard time with favorite lists because it's whichever one I'm watching, kind mm-hmm. of. But I would say um, the original series is my favorite just because it's my origin. Mm-hmm. You know. And did you watch Enterprise on first run or did you watch it later? Yeah, I did. I, I did watch it first run. And at the time, I was even on uh, Usenet, which was the old message board system uh, on that alt Rex Star Trek, I think it was. And even back then, talked about it with other people. I remember mm-hmm. how it was talked about and everything. But yeah, I did watch it. And I will say, first run through, I liked it. But on uh, now with the binging services, that's where I think it really shines, and I've really, really grown to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, especially like a season three is really good to just sit through and watch through. You know, I mean, you don't have to wait the weeks to find out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it seemed all over the place. It was really hard to find it at the time. They seemed to move it for everything under the sun. Yeah, it's like common complaint about what happened with that show and one of the reasons it's got canceled so quickly but see, I don't remember that but I also had TiVo then so I would watch it after it aired and my TiVo would find it so yeah. 
I didn't have that problem. I got lucky. So that's kind of my whole, you know, just always been my favorite go-to thing. And I feel like Star Trek is formative of my personality. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? Uh, I kind of viewed the world as I was growing up through the lens of like, particularly Spock. I, I always identified with him most. Mm -hmm. um, and it just was always there. You know, I can remember having somebody, my sister went to school of mines and technology and someone printed out a huge on the old teletype computer printouts, um, the, a big Spock banner with the enterprise and Spock that said live long and prosper that I had up on my wall for mm -hmm. years, you know, stuff like that. I mean, I just really, my dad got me the first technical manual when it came out, sadly lost to a flood in the basement, but Ugh. yeah, I used to, I loved that, you know, just because it, it, I don't know, all of that stuff. Yeah. I was real into it. And that was about the only merchandise I lived in the middle of the U S and a small city. So we didn't, you know, you didn't have the merchandise that people get now or even back then, you know, mm -hmm. but I managed to make my own merchandise a lot. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Excellent. Well, right on. Well, today's subject we're going to be talking about uh, is to Paul and kind of her interactions with humans uh, as like a particular focus and just maybe how her her attitude has changed over the four seasons that we were watching. Um, so Patrick, why don't you take it away? Where should we start? Well, first, what was, what are your initial thoughts of her Vulcans, but more specifically to Paul's reaction to humans early on in the series, Karen? I feel like she had to have an initial curiosity that just eventually got revealed. You know, she talked the Soval line a lot humans this and humans that and but she had you could tell that she was intrigued by them and I think throughout Broken Bow you see her especially when it gets to the end where they're following the warp signatures and she and Archer get into that almost crime partner uh, pattern where they're each on the same page and they haven't you know haven't talked about it and I feel like that was a kind of crystallizing moment when she's like, well, humans aren't quite what I thought they were. You know, mm -hmm. Maybe they're not as primitive as I thought they were. So I feel like, you know, maybe it was from her grandmother and the carbon, you know, she, Carbon Creek talks about her grandmother, which we know is a real story. Mm -hmm. Obviously they had a gag order on it. So she couldn't say that really happened, but um, I feel like maybe she had that instilled in her as a youngster. And now mm -hmm. she actually gets to experience it. Yeah, that's interesting to think that um, because we, when we hear the Carbon Creek story in season two, like T'Pol knows the story. You know, I don't know if she embellishes a little bit. I mean, if we take Vulcans at the word, she's probably as factual as she could have been with the story that was told and passed down to her. But I bet you her, her I, I think it's a great grandmother, actually. Um, I think her great-grandmother would have had a particular fascination with humans from her interaction with what was going on in, in Carbon Creek, you know, and that's actually a very interesting point that you bring up to that connection, Karen. I've never actually thought of it that way because I think with T'Pol, we do get um, a sense of her, uh, her fascination with humans because I think in fusion, like we, we learned that she, she left the Vulcan compound and she would explore human cities when she was on Earth, right? Right. And we know from Carbon Creek that she took a trip to Carbon Creek. So she left the other Vulcans at that time, too. Mm-hmm. She's had at least two experiences where she got to be alone in a human environment mm -hmm. previous to coming on Enterprise. Yeah. Because, like, when we go back and we watch early seasons of Enterprise, like... Archer's really the one who's aggressive towards T'Pol. Yeah. Paul's just Vulcan, right? And us as viewers, if, if you've watched all the other Star Treks, you, you know what Vulcans are. And I really do think that Archer is hypersensitive to what's going on, and he's he's putting a lot of his own feelings onto T'Pol's interactions with him. 
Yeah, he is. I mean, he is definitely, a, you know, has a has a biased attitude toward her and toward, you know, because of his ex history with the Vulcan, you know, with the council. Mm -hmm. But, and we haven't had a ton of, you know, I was thinking about it. And when, other than Spock, when you go on and you have, you have Spock and you have Tuvok, Next Generation didn't have a ton of Vulcans. And, uh, except for like Salar, you know, mm -hmm. so really Tapal is, is our, since Tuvok, the most focal point. And we certainly didn't see women Vulcans in this kind of professional capacity. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's that too, you know. You know, she, uh, personally, I think she's a great character for that reason. You know, like we get another, you know, number two Vulcan and, uh, a female at that and and I think it's funny because I didn't get to comment on the Carbon Creek thing but I didn't think I didn't put that together either like I didn't think of but interestingly enough a lot of what we feel about how she because I feel in the beginning she doesn't like humans even though she's interested she doesn't really like them she mentions about um, not liking their smell mm -hmm. or the smells on the ship get to her and stuff like that And but her and Archer are both really heavily influenced by their their ancestors, you know, because because Archer's really mad at the Vulcans because they felt he felt his father didn't get to see the warp five because they held him back, mm. you know, and then she's more interested because her great grandmother passed down this story through her family, you know, per, uh, assuming. And so they're both they've both their feelings are built by their families more than their experiences, which is, in my experience, not a good thing, but happens all the time. Mm -hmm. And I get the feeling sometimes that she's almost quoting what she hears from the Vulcans around her. But as she is exposed to humans, without that influence, she gradually becomes more open. In the early, early episodes that Tapal is on, I feel like sometimes she's just a, like she's interpreting humans. And she is as she becomes exposed without the other Vulcans around her, she gets better at that. And I think Phlox is a key foil for her in that regard, since he mm -hmm. approaches humans the complete opposite. They have great conversations. Mm -hmm. That She always seems to like open up just a little bit more. Well, and also what's interesting is because of Archer's uh, bias towards them, he's more willing to go look into Vulcans in general. And I feel that him finding them spying actually helps her realize maybe they're not as bad, maybe we're not as good as I've been led to believe. So it opens her up more to, to listening and thinking for herself. Not that she's not thinking for herself before that, but, I, you know, everyone's obviously influenced by their, their culture and their society. So, But she's now realizing maybe my society is not exactly what I've been led to believe it is. Right. Yeah, I very much think so. I think that was a huge turning point, the Andorian incident all around. She was with humans inescapably, you know, in the ship, at least go to her room. That whole discovery, yeah, I mean, it's like, well, I always believe at all of the other Vulcans. And it's like, hmm, this is, I, I think that's a big turning point for her. Mm -hmm. I almost think that with the character of T'Pol now, we've got a situation of somebody where... You know, she's she's had one type of experience, uh, one type of perception of humans because of what's been told to her by her family. And then she gets another interpretation of, Vulc of humans because of her interaction with other Vulcans. And so she's trying to, maybe she's trying to sort that out internally, and which is part of the reason why she ended up going back to Earth and wanting to explore things and being able to leave the Vulcan compound is because she was the kind of person who's like, you know, I kind of want to find out for myself what these humans are like. And yeah. the, her attitude of like, oh, they're stinky and whatnot. Like, yes, Vulcans have a more sensitive nose. Um, but if she'd been living on Earth, she probably would have gotten used to a lot of that by then. So that could just be that that remaining impression that she has of humans because of what other Vulcans have told her. Because, you know, I work in a work, an office environment, and I know that when I came over, like, uh, me and one person didn't get along very well. And this person moved... We, we were both working in one place. This person moved to another location and then talked up a bad storm about me. And then I ended up moving to that same position 
And so they all had this impression, impression of my work ethic and my workability based on what this other person said. But then slowly as time came on, like my actual work ethic and my workability spoke for themselves. And they realized you were worse than he was saying. I was better. Thanks a lot, Patrick. So you would have taken that shot at me, and you know it. I would have, yes, yes. So, anyways, um, but you know, so I think that she's kind of like that too. So she's she's been influenced by what other people are saying, but she wants to kind of find out on her own uh, to yeah. what humans are. And early on, I think you know she's in a position where you're right. All of that's true, but Archer is so anti-Vulcan that she's like, well, maybe society is right mm. because you know that's one of the. And this is this is. Another part of great uh, Star Trek uh, social commentary, if you've only been, I live in New York. If I've never left New York, I would never know anything but New York. I wouldn't. So if people were telling me, oh, people down south act this way, and people out west act that way, and people in Canada act this way, and I didn't have any experience with any of you, but my family may have, you know, because my dad traveled all over the world, all, uh, all over the world in the country with the military, you know, and he would tell me things. So I, you know, obviously I'd believe my dad to a point, but I'm also hearing from everyone else. No, all those people act that way. And then I meet someone from the South and they hate New Yorkers. Well, I'm going to believe, wow, the people must have been right. These people hate us. But that's because I have such a limited exposure and the, the one person I'm being exposed to is, is fitting the stereotype. Mm-hmm. Instead of debunking it, which the vast majority of people would debunk the stereotype, you know. But she, so she's actually placed in a situation that's going to reinforce the negative. At first, it's going to reinforce the negative mm-hmm. instead of reinforcing what her family had told her. So it makes the struggle even harder at that point. And right. and Archer does the same thing. They both reinforce this image for a while this this stereotype for a while it's not till they're together longer and do more that it starts to slowly come about that they have misconceptions of each other mm-hmm. yeah and i'm glad that they wrote it this way they didn't write it off in an episode or two no, uh-uh. you know it and took thought- two seasons to get yeah. them to the point really where you believe that they've both wiped away any anything they've been told by anyone else and have come up with their own opinions on the situation and I always thought that Paul Hero was kind of important because this ambassador showed to Paul there was a way to interact with humans that was more integrative, you know? She shook hands, and I mean, Paul's very shocked by her behavior. And it's like, well, she's a diplomat, and she understands you have to kind of talk in the language of the people you're interacting with. And I think seeing that kind of also helps edge T'Pol into a more interactive, less judgmental role Mm -hmm. between humans and Vulcans Mm -hmm. because she has an example, you know, of somebody who tries to joke, tries to be more relaxed and doesn't, you know, have to tote the line that T'Pol's always heard with the council members who are very strict because they feel like they're controlling a situation you know, for the benefit of everybody. Mm -hmm. So I always thought that was super important too. But I did notice on my watch through this time, like, because she is, she has her moments of emotional vulnerability, you know, um, particularly the fusion, the fusion episode, which shows us again, that she's interested in experiencing things outside of her, uh, current experience you know mm-hmm. otherwise she just would ignore it even if archer pushed her towards interacting she would have ignored it but she didn't so but um i love it at one point in the seventh i love archer says are you kidding you have um and your emotional immune system melted down the minute you remembered and i love that phrase your emotional immune system thinking about vulcans and how i hate it when people say they don't have emotions because that's not the case but Mm. i loved that whole idea that vulcans have an emotional immune system that they've built up Mm -hmm. and um i think that what paul does is learn to adjust that in a more balanced way Mm -hmm. especially over the first season i mean they did a good job of unfolding that relationship over the first season i thought Mm -hmm. yeah i think they did a great job and then it leads us to the last episode of season two where she actually resigns 
to stay with them because mm-hmm. the Vulcan Council wants her to come back and get out of the the um, you know the the Earth's problems. You know, we don't want Vulcans in their problems with with the Zindi. So you need to come back, and so she has a choice to either just go back, and she could have. You can't fault her for it because her commander told her to, mm-hmm. but instead she decides, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna resign so I can stay, and that's that that's a, a giant leap forward from what we see, you know, early on season one. Never she would have never done that early, and she does it because she really feels she can contribute, and she is concerned about Enterprise and the and and her shipmates. And I think she kind of realizes that again. She had a very pivotal conversation with Phlox in that episode. You know, he's a, he is her little her little sounding board foil for like for that situation as well. She's like, "Why are you staying?" And it's like she almost has to feel him out to make her decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I've watched a, a lot of these episodes. I don't know, twenty, thirty times, and I until this podcast, I never realized just how important Phlox is to her character development. But it's massive. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They're small scenes, but they have quite a few little individual scenes where they talk, and it's always kind of like a little model that he's kind of saying, well, now look at it this way. Mm-hmm. And you can tell from his twinkle in his eye that he knows what he's doing when he's talking to her also. You know that he's saying, well, look at these things, you know? And I really like their relationship. Another relationship that she has with humans that I want to talk about is her relationship that she has with Trip, right? Because is this something that we believe with it? Like, I'm a big Trip and T'Pol shipper, right? Out of all the relationships in Star Trek, it's probably my favorite, right? It's the one that I want it to happen. I love Dax and Worf, right? But most of the other ones I don't really buy, um, y- you know. But I-, I like this one a lot, and I'm wondering... Do you guys think that this is a believable relationship that we got out of the show? I'll start with you, Karen. So, so I, I yes, but I've I've been on record a lot. I don't care about relationships on Star Trek. I just it's, uh, they don't make or break an episode for me. They don't matter to me. I, a part of it is there were a couple of really creepy scenes to watch with your grandmother with them. Like, and I said that early on when I first came on. Like, I watched the show with my grandmother, mm-hmm. so like, the, the 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 massage scenes were just a little awkward to watch with it with your grandmother at you know at age eighteen, nineteen years old. But uh, so, but no, I mean it's believable. Um, I just I just wasn't a big. I don't want to say I wasn't a fan of shippers because I don't I don't I just didn't care one way or another if they had relationships on the show or not. It it didn't. If they had them, great. If they didn't have them, great. Like. Whatever, you know? So I didn't pay attention too, too much to that. Although this one was very in-your-face, and it did play a role because... And we've talked about it before, Brandon, where, like, because she's Vulcan, it drove him crazy later on in season... Mm-hmm. Late season three? Season four? Yeah. Somewhere. And... But... Which we didn't really buy into that part of it. But I... You know, I think I liked it better if I... Now, looking back, I would have liked it better if they continued down the Archer path, which is where they were going at first... But uh, this one's probably more believable. I can see both of them, but I actually feel like I thought it was believable. Um, it could get a little, I mean, sometimes they got a little heavy hitting on the, oh, there was particularly an episode, I can't remember which one, where she's clearly jealous of his relationship with that Mako. Yeah, but I think it was Harbinger. That was, that was a little bit. That episode is, is is a little too far that direction. I don't think she would have been quite so in your face about that. But they definitely had, a, you know, an opposites attract, and they think they both came. You know, there was furthering their steps toward open mindedness toward another culture. Because I always think it's interesting. I mean, do you ever think about what a huge chasm alien relationships would be when? You know, just like as we were pointing out, different parts of the country or the the world, Earth, is so, there's such cultural differences. And that would be so magnified mm. between alien cultures, you know. And uh, I really, I liked their relationship a lot. And, mm-hmm. you know, of course, nothing comes to pass how we wanted it to. But mm-hmm. <laughs> do you think that, that we would have got that relationship without the neural pressure? 
it just might have taken longer, probably. You think it still could have happened? Because I think it's kind of starting as early as season one, really. Okay. You know, there's, there's an episode, I can't remember. Uh, well, even like, oh, is that Shuttle Pod? And, mm-hmm. you know, Malcolm is asking, you know, saying to, to Trip, oh, tell me you haven't noticed how attractive she is. And he's like, no, no. And I think kind of from that point on, he starts thinking about her a little more or less as an alien. Because I do think at first he's like, oh, that's an alien and not uh, not just you know interested in they definitely come to loggerheads a lot but i do think that kind of opens him up to well wait a second i you know by that time they're starting to be shipmates and that's what changes things mm-hmm. i just think it would take him longer without the neural pressure stuff mm-hmm. we definitely would have needed the seven seasons then <laughs> yes well we need the seven seasons anyhow <laughs> I don't think it's such a shame. So now, I uh, oh, I wish I could remember the name of the episode now, and I really can't. What, what's the episode where they where they get hit with the anomaly, and then he can't remember, so she stays with Arch Twilight? Right. So, what did you think of that relationship progressing that way? If those events had been, it turns out at the end of the episode they don't exist. But had the the events played out, do you think she at that point was? in that state of mind to do that then i felt like that was a much more caretaker friend role not necessarily you know it's almost like she just was i think they were very bonded no matter her relationship with trip or not i think she really trusted archer and that they really liked each other in a whole different level mm-hmm. you know I bet she trusted Archer far above Trip for any situation. And I think that's how in that episode she ends up being his caretaker. You know, which that's just such a sad episode to me. I really like it. But it's just kind of, you know, the Alzheimer type situation almost. And and it's just really quite touching, I think. Mm-hmm. So, but you do think that had they not figured out how to fix it, this that those events would have played out that way. I think so. You think she would have stayed, even if it wasn't romantic, she would have stayed. I think she would have. I really do. Mm-hmm. I think she was that loyal to him. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, Brandon, I mean, we've talked about it before, but how do you? I, I see that as platonic. I know that they kind of leave it open and vague to interpretation, and that's how Mike Sussman wanted it to be. Um, but I, I interpret it as just a platonic friendship and loyalty situation, you know. Um, but I, I see the development of that bond and that loyalty. And, you know, I've always interpreted Vulcans as being very loyal people. I mean, like, look at Spock, you know, and how loyal he was to Pike in the by the time we get to the Menagerie, right? And how he's willing to sacrifice his career out of loyalty, you know, and then also like with the stuff that he does with Kirk in Star Trek Six, right? He's willing to violate the neutral zone to save his captain, right? He's got that sense of loyalty. Tuvok, right? Like Tuvok is very loyal to Janeway, right? Yeah. We see this loyalty in Vulcans every time. And while we get that out of humans as well, it does feel different coming from a Vulcan because they do their best to not show those emotions, right? So loyalty is kind of an emotion as well i guess right there's an emotional attachment you need to be attached to the person in order to be loyal and because vulcans are so strong in their emotions when those emotions come out therefore that loyalty is that much stronger as well yeah i think you're right i absolutely agree that there is a very it's a characteristic of once you make a vulcan friend that's a deep connection whether it's platonic or romantic or you know it's very uh, almost unbreakable really Mm -hmm. i you know i don't know and it's interesting you bring up that point because i think that has happened i mean i just think that is a characteristic of vulcans Mm -hmm. and it'd be interesting to know i just think it's more apparent with humans because the humans are more emotional Mm-hmm. showing their emotions mm-hmm. you know it, it probably is just as deep between vulcans but 
you're not exposed to that because we don't get a lot of Vulcan uh, solo relationships shown to us, but mm -hmm. I'm sure it's there, but you're right. I think it's a top quality of a Vulcan um, ethics position. I mean, I just think that that's once you've proved yourself, then that's it. You mm -hmm. know? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. But Cause I do that she was so loyal to Archer, she would have stayed with him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because we don't see a lot of Vulcan-Vulcan interaction until we get to Enterprise. Like, yeah, with Journey to Babel, we had that, right? Um, but there's not a lot of uh, uh, instances where we get more than one Vulcan on screen at a time until we get to Enterprise. And, you know, like the the uh, Saval and the Vulcans that they deal with most of the time are so... Contra confrontational and so aggressive, right? Because they're these, you know, they're this different type of Vulcan that we don't really associate with Spock and Tuvok, these emotional, angry kind of Vulcan people, you know, that we've we've learned are these, with Discovery, we've learned are these, um, possibly these uh, subverses or whatever. I can't remember what they quite call it in, uh, in um, Discovery there, but... They call them extremists, which is really funny. Yeah, but the, Vulcan, I do the logic extremist. That's right. Yes. Yes. But I think too that the council had such a completely different position. They, I think, I think they felt like they were protecting the entire quadrant, and they were a bit a bit panicky about humans. And I don't know, you know, it's like do they see themselves their their ancient past in the humans? So they see the potential, but they also see the damage that can be wrought. And whereas Tapal was able to take it down to a personal one-on-one -on -one level she's one of the first Vulcans to be able to do that and it made a difference too that it's like well you can't just press them down you have to work with them and I think you know maybe historically she might be a super important figure in the Vulcan human relationships because mm -hmm. she proved that there is this ability to chain together between Vulcans and humans on a working level you know, I think they missed something. I would have loved to have seen T'Pol in Discovery, you know, especially dealing with these logic extremists. I think that would have been a really interesting addition. And I, I know that a lot of people, like, they, you know, they either like or they don't like all the references to other Star Trek. I like them. You know, I like universe building and universe expanding and interconnecting and stuff like this. But I think that's one area where they could have, they, they definitely missed out on something by not having an older T'Pol show up at some point. And we may not get that. Like, this is not too much spoilers for season three of Discovery or anything like that. But, uh, you know, with <laughs> with the the soft reboot that we're getting for season three, we, we're probably never going to get that again now. So Maybe if we have a Pike, a Pike show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would make sense. So it would because this is like like Karen said, this is the first time that they've proved they can work together. And honestly, the NX01 doesn't run as well without T'Pol's influence. Well, she's like the guide. I mean, she's the she's a true guide uh, of into these cultures, but she gets to experience it in a different way, which she's probably already experienced it as a Vulcan with a Vulcan group, but now she's experiencing it with humans and she's finding probably a little richer experience with that, I would think. Yeah, and we also have to remember at this time, the, you know, this is when they push out the old council and bring in the council that we've known for the rest of Star Trek. So, you know, it, it's, it, there's a whole, there's a big change coming and a lot of it stems from what the Enterprise does and T'Pol's a major player in that, all of that happened. And imagine finding out, and her mother. Yeah, finding out about her mother. I mean, I'm sure that that was also a big influence, you know. And I think she experienced a little bit of hurt that way, too. Mm -hmm. Well, her mom did get kicked out because of her affinity for humans, right? So. Yeah, it's just, I don't know. I think that she has a really nice, rich, interesting background that you get revealed as it goes on and they mention a lot of times that she's the first one that lasted past what two months of of, of working one-on-one -on -one with humans mm -hmm. yeah as far as they're concerned yeah so they, they ignore the carbon creek issue right because that ha lasted way more than two months but well um, i feel uh, like they have a gag order on that whole incident yeah <laughs> but that's just but that's 
Well, no, they because they say that it's on record in the Vulcan. I feel like she doesn't get to talk about it. It's not like a, it's. Well, it can't be just in the database, or the guys could have looked it up to see if it was a true story. Yeah, but we but Enterprise doesn't have all of the Vulcan database, mm-hmm. so like they don't have access to everything. But it is it's on record somewhere. But they they don't really acknowledge it anyway. Mm-hmm. Even still, they, they like they said she's the only one that's gone two months. Well, we know that's not true if we believe Carbon Creek. So. You know, she always just want to know, follow the guy who stayed. I just think it would be so interesting to see what his life was like. Well, then you need to start reading Dayton, Dayton Ward's books because he oh, does he, he takes does he follow him. Yeah, there's a couple of books that take place during those time. I can't remember. I think Desperate Measures or Drastic Measures or something like that is one of them. I think it's Drastic Measures. I'm seeing if I can look over here and see them on my shelf. Well, uh, what I'm more interested about that guy's life is. How did, when he died, nobody knew he wasn't human? <laughs> yeah, did he never get answered? I want an answer for that. I mean, it doesn't really matter. I get it. But I want an answer for that. Mm-hmm. And maybe he took measures to keep that from being discovered. I mean, yeah. there'd be ways you could avoid that. So I want to think now that we've talked about this and this this connection that we've had with Carbon Creek that I've never really thought about. I wonder how the paternal grandmother influenced you know telling this story and whatnot maybe this influenced to paul's mom right you know and then very possible right which so uh, i'll maybe they kept it on the down low as to her feelings towards humans and whatnot uh because it would have affected the whole family you know so and she was really moved by that boy and she really went to a lot of effort mm. um, it i love that show that episode because of how she just you know she's still maintaining the whole i'm not i don't want to be here i'm not part of this until she has that one conversation with with the with the teenager and he says he's not going to school and it just kind of i think that's when she realizes how much she actually does think there's potential here there's potential here i can't see this potential wasted and i can't imagine not instilling that in your family you know especially down you know the there's definitely going to be some residual fallout from that and i think it was that she's influenced the family to be to understand that humans aren't necessarily what you're just taught they are they're more there's more potential than that yeah now 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 talking about this in long form i mean Really, T'Pol's family is like the most important Vulcan family to Star Trek. I think they're very important. I think she is very important. And I think that she does not get the credit she deserves for being a really formative place in this universe. Yeah, without without this... Move over, Spock. But it's true. I mean, I, I, people are screaming right now. But, um, but really, we don't have... If you play this out historically, not obviously not the way those shows were written, but if you believe the timeline the way they have it set, without T'Pol and her family, you don't end up with Sarek and Spock and any of that happening. Maybe it does still happen eventually, but it doesn't play out the same way and it may take longer or it may never happen or whatever. But this family really did push eventually for this to end up in the Star Trek that we've been watching for ever. Well, Ever. I feel like there's probably pockets. Like, Sarah and Amanda would have been kind of in tandem. But there's another person who uh, sees something that, you know, he's he's very... I mean, there's no doubt he's attracted to the human culture for a reason. And these these are formative... I mean, she's certainly as formative or, or approaching. I mean, she creates maybe on the more professional level. He wasn't so much into the whole working with them uh, or it's like okay if you work with them but not my son <laughs> yeah well yeah but like do we even get Amanda and Sarah together if we don't have to Paul's family maybe not to Paul but to Paul's family leads to a Vulcan the first Vulcan who decides I'm going to resign so I can stay with humans right mm-hmm. so now moving that storyline forward do we even end up with Amanda meeting Sarek and falling in love and ending up having a family. If we don't have those events, if we don't have the Endorian incident and everything that happens in Enterprise that leads up to that moment, I mean, 
Yes, it's possible. I know people are screaming it's possible, but the world plays out different if events play out different. That's just the way it is, you know, like... I think there's a, a very... I mean, and I actually think in reality, like, if that were a real situation, you have to have a linchpin person or event that did get, got you past that chasm of the cultural differences. And, and I think they filled that in very nicely here. Mm-hmm. I would agree. <laughs> uh... Is there anything else you wanted to talk about with T'Pol uh, that we didn't touch on so far, Karen? Not that I can think of. I um, I think that she just had a really interesting arc, and she had an interesting background. Um, you know, and they didn't have her experiencing emotions every other week uh, or emotional breakdowns. Mm-hmm. Meltdowns of her emotional immune system. I just love that phrase. I just think that's so great. <laughs> Until, of course, she was a uh, became a drug addict. Well, even <laughs> that was not prolonged. I didn't feel like they prolonged that too long, and mm-hmm. and had a good basis of why. I mean, it was really, and I actually kind of liked that whole. I, it, now, do you find it interesting that the mind melt was not? I mean, even she, she thought it was kind of a myth. Well, if we're talking about myths, she also believed that you couldn't time travel while she was time traveling, you know. So she was, she was, she would, but that's, but and that's very Vulcan, right? She was so set in her ways. The uh, Vulcan High Command has has um, decided that I don't know the exact words, but whatever that that time travel is not possible. <laughs> He's like, you're in like, I forget what city they went to, Detroit, right? You're in Detroit in 1950. I think we can say that that's wrong now. Nope, they said it can't exist. Like, yeah, I think it's after that period where they go. What is that? It's Carpenter Street where they yes, go. Yes. Yeah, and then after that, she, she finally gave up the ghost and was like, oh, no. <laughs> "I'm not going to say it out loud, but okay." <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> Let's just not talk about it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Excellent. Right on. Is there anything we missed that you wanted to talk about, Brandon? No, I think we touched on everything here. I, this is an interesting conversation, and it, and uh, I love that Karen brought up that connection to Carbon Creek because you know we 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 take Carbon Creek as to what it is, but I, I, I there's always been that disassociation with me, and I've never really, while I understand it's a relative, I've never really put it into context of her family, you know. So I don't know. It's just this. I think it's pivotal i really yeah. do i think it makes you understand that she has a layer under her that it's like well no wonder she wants to stick this out mm-hmm. yeah that's a great point no i really a little more yeah i'm really all glad right so brandon that. does that change your vote for what is that now essential no oh i hate maybe you. it is too <laughs> you know what actually maybe i do change it now it actually you know, like that's it's an essential part for maybe understanding to Paul's character. So yeah, I it is a huge part of it. Yeah. You know, and I love how. All right, I got it in. I love, <laughs> love how that's layered in there, and you just think you're clear into it. You're just at the beginning of season two, and you found out all this stuff about her, and then you have this little cage. She's very good at play acting for a Vulcan, though, man. She mm-hmm. she caught on quick how to how to slip into that kind of play acting mode with humans, you know, picking up cues. Mm. And I credit Archer with that. She, But she does that little play acting with them telling the story. But I think it's a she's revealing a big chunk of her uh, persona to them because she had to have grown up hearing her great grandmother or grandmother, the story passed down in some form, you know. Mm-hmm. I think it's important. Well, speaking of that, actually, uh, play acting, that was one. Of, that's a great scene throughout the series with Paul Is uh, you know, at first she doesn't want to do the movie nights, but then she eventually agrees to do them and do more of a human thing. And and the whole scene with Flocks and when he wouldn't stop talking, and she's like, "Would you like us to stop for you?" I mean, I thought that was great. That that shows a lot of character development in her up to that point, and it plays on to what you're saying with the the play acting. You know, like she. She, she took that role, even though a Vulcan probably wouldn't do it that way, you know? Yeah, she's really co- pretty good at it, and she starts slipping into the hole. She can pick up the cues from Trip and Archer. The people she knows best, she can really pick up cues from mm-hmm. and, and slide into that. And I'm always very impressed with that. She's been the best Vulcan for 
for being able to do that. Yeah, and also with the movie night, the the perspective she gives us on Frankenstein was great. We talked about that in our Frankenstein episode. Absolutely. Where she sees herself more in the monster than the people the monster's going after. Yeah. Um, Which is funny because that's how we felt when we watched the movie. But um, (laughs) that wasn't the intent of the movie, you know? Yeah. I think it's in there, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely, and then she and Fox also feel a bit apart being the only two, you know, aliens on a human vessel, and, you know, she, I mean, just think you're bound to feel the other, that feeling. Yeah, I I, I would agree. Uh, um, but yeah. So, uh, any final thoughts, uh, Karen? Oh, I just am glad that you guys asked me on, because I, I, I really always have felt that Tapal gets gets a short shrift of being a pretty pivotal character. Mm-hmm. I think she's a lot more important than people think, and I think she adds a lot of layers into the whole ethos of the universe and the Star Trek universe. Mm-hmm. So I really appreciate giving me this opportunity. Oh, we definitely thank you for coming on. Uh, Brandon, do you have any final thoughts? No, I'm good. This is a good discussion. I, uh, I'm glad we chose this topic. It gave me a new perspective on some of the things that we've seen with T'Pol and, and uh, a new appreciation. Like, I've always loved the character. I think T'Pol is great. I think Jolene Blaylock does a very good job of T'Pol. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and uh, I don't know. I missed, this is a good discussion. Thanks for coming on, Karen. Yeah. Th- I, I, again, I've always liked T'Pol as well. And... Um... But this does give a new perspective on looking at the character of T'Pol because, like you said, we I didn't think of the family aspect, so that mm-hmm. changes things. And you know, as we discussed throughout this podcast, and um, yeah, so thank you for coming on, Karen. I mean, it was your idea to talk to Paul too, so that was great. Uh, it was a good topic to pick, and uh, I think we, we came up with some really good stuff for. Her. Um, so, uh, if anyone wants to get in touch with you, is there any way you know where are you easy most easily found on the internet? Well, I'm on the Babel Conference and on Facebook, um, just Karen Chuplis, C-H-U-P-L-I-S, and I am at K-A-R-I-N-C-H-U on Twitter, Karen Chu, and um, those are probably the two best places to get a hold of me. Mm -hmm. Right on. Well, talking about uh, T'Pol's family being the most important Vulcan family in the history of Star Trek is not all we've been discussing this week on the network. So please take a listen to this clip and see what else you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Earl Grey. But just really in a most passionate way he could, in a compassionate manner, he, he goes to him, you are not alone. We're here to help you to do this together. And that means so much to me. Like, you know, I guess being being the youngest kid in the family, so I kind of think, you know, that, like, you, you don't want to be left out. So you know that feeling where no one's listening to you? But to see Picard really reach out to him, and he wants to help him with all his might, but but there's just that, there, there's that divide with him not being able to speak or hear. Melodic tricks. Eventually, you know, it, it the screen goes to white, and then you cut to... Um, Ripley's ship that's been derelict for 57 years and there's this very lonesome sounding string melody that's playing and I don't think it's a direct lift but it's it's certainly very very similar to a piece by um, Aram Kachaturian Uh, it's from a piece a suite of music called the Gain Ballet Suite and it's an adagio The Edge a Star Trek Discovery podcast no, that we say goodbye to everybody this season. Like anyone who walked off the bridge, like if you had to go take a leak, they would like all stand up and say goodbye. It was like pathetic. The orb. Maybe we all need to be comfortable with that discomfort of hearing something that's different from what we think. So instead of attacking, instead of pushing back immediately, we could just let it go. We could say nothing or we could respond with, Hmm, that's interesting. That's not how I see it, but I didn't think about it that way either. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all these shows and join in the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. Everywhere, including Carbon Creek. If you're an Apple user, please be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. Please leave us a star rating and a written review. 
If you are not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to email... If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Warp 5. That will come right to us. You can find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. So, Brendan, when you're not telling stories of your great-grandparents, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Brandon Matella. You can find me here on the network with Melodic Treks doing uh, music of Star Trek discussions. And uh, you can find me over on the Fandom Podcast Network with my friends Chris and Tom, where we talk about Hitchcock films on Good Evening, an Alfred Hitchcock podcast. Also on the United Federation of Podcast Network with my friends Zach. Uh, we have a show called Franchise Fatigue, where we talk all about movie franchises, with the originals, the sequels, the remakes, the whole shebang. So that's a whole heck of a lot of fun. And uh, that's basically about it. That's where you can find me right now. Those are the best places. Uh, Patrick, where can people find you when you're not uh, trying to perform Vulcan Neuropressure on me? Uh, well, I'm not trying to do that, uh, which is a long-distance neuropressure. But uh, when I'm not doing that, you can find me at uh, oh, you can find me on Twitter at MagicDrop5. It's no spaces, and the 5 is a number, not word, not letters. You can find me hanging around the Babel Conference from time to time. And you can find me on the edge with my good friend Amy Nelson. If you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, Vulcan Neuropressure from Patrick, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. And we'd like to thank, at this time, all of our wonderful ancestors of T'Pol who support the network through Patreon. Norman C. Lau, Floyd Dorsey, Mike Morrison, Tim Cooper, Justin Ozer, Mark Flessa, Chris Chibuzio, and Jim McMahon. Thank you so much for your logical support of the network. We really, truly appreciate it. Well, that's all we got for you this time. We're not quite sure where we're doing next week, but uh, the episode after that will be our discussion on The Exorcist. So stay tuned for another episode of War 5. And until then, remember, you can't be afraid of the wind.